Here's a message from today's episode's sponsor. Long-term care pharmacies are always on the hunt for ways to scale their business and ensure they're a solutions partner for their nursing home and skilled facility customers. Now, with the aging baby boomer generation projected to increase the number of Americans ages 65 and older from 46 million to more than 95 million by 2060, the demand for long-term care has never been greater, and neither have the growth opportunities for LTC pharmacies. Framework LTC is a long-term care pharmacy software designed to improve scale Scalability. This platform is incredibly effective for scaling your LTC pharmacy business. It starts with your workflow management, designed around your operations. Framework LTC was designed with long-term care intricacies in mind, which provide a number of different features unavailable with a retail pharmacy software. Framework LTC helps to accomplish these seven critical categories. Streamlined workflows, automated manual tasks, custom services to meet unique needs of different facilities, gain better visibility into your operations, make data-driven decisions, curb your billing complexities, and manage new services. Learn more at frameworkltc.com. That's frameworkltc.com. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Adverse drug reactions, or ADRs, are a serious issue in healthcare today. The pharmacist is the last line of defense to help prevent ADRs. A rising role of the pharmacist is the specialist who focuses on our children. Pediatric pharmacy ensures safe and effective drug use and optimal medication therapy outcomes in children up to 18 years of age. Currently, there are more than 1,450 board-certified pediatric pharmacy specialists, known as BPS. If you're interested in this expanding field of pharmacy, this podcast is for you. All right, everyone, let's give it up for our host. Hi, welcome to the Pediatric Pharmacist Review Podcast. We're part of the podcast network. I'm Allison Chung, the host of the Pediatric Pharmacist Review, but I have a new co-host to introduce with us today. I'd like to welcome and introduce Jenna Quinn. I will let her introduce herself. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I am really excited to work with Allison and join her for the pediatric review. Uh, Three of my little children running in and out at any time, so just want to give you a heads up. But uh, just like Allison, I'm a pediatric pharmacist, and I'm really excited to just really dive into the the best and the most up-to-date literature and learn with you guys. Yeah, and so for our first program today, we're going to talk to Rachel Meyer and David Hoff about their kids list. So just um, just to remember, children are not little adults. They have very different pharmacokinetics, disease states, and pharmacodynamics. Despite this, children use prescription medications about 20% of the time and actually make up about 20% of all prescriptions in the U.S. Yet, only about 50% of medications are actually labeled for children. This makes it a little harder to navigate prescribing medications for children at the right dose, right duration, and making sure it's safe. 
Unfortunately, adverse drug reactions happen to everyone and with any medication. Adverse drug reactions are any noxious or unintended response to a drug that occurs in a person at normal doses. Despite them happening, we try to mitigate it and we need to be proactive. Now tell us about yourself, Dave. <laughs> sure. Well, um, I... Uh... Graduate of the University of Minnesota, um, and I've been in pediatric pharmacy for well ever since, pretty much, um, the, uh, minus uh, about a year and a half there, where I did some consulting. But um, I uh, I've worked at you know various uh, pediatric hospitals. I've been a clinical manager, uh, preceptor, residency program director, um, and now I'm currently uh, the pharmacy director of acute care at Children's Minnesota. So I'm responsible for um, both hospital campuses. Oh, nice. And so acute, so do they have, they're both hospital though? When you say like, are there any like rehabs or are they all, they're all hospitals? Yeah, they're two hospitals. So um, at Children's Minneapolis, uh, we have any given day, we probably have 220 to 250 uh, children in the hospital. Wow. And um, St. Paul campus has about 115 in a given day. And our, our license beds are a lot higher than that. But that's about what we are. And bo both are acute care hospitals. Um, there, there is some subspecialization, you know, uh, between the hospitals. Yeah, well, I'm sure you're a busy man. So thank you so much for your time. Um, Rachel, could you introduce yourself to yeah. Sure. So I'm Rachel Myers. Um, I graduated from um, the University of Connecticut School of Pharmacy, and then um, I did my postgraduate training at the University of Wisconsin and the University of North Carolina. And I've been faculty at Rutgers ever since. And my practice site um, is at Cooperman Barnabas Medical Center, which is up in Livingston, New Jersey. Um, and I practice in the pediatric ICU and the general pediatrics units there. Can I Great. guess how long? How long have you been with Rutgers? So a little mm. bit of a backstory is that um, I'm, I'm asking, we're not going to say her age. No, Rachel was my teacher and she was absolutely fabulous. So her, I mean, Anita Sue, Christy, mm -hmm. like you were also impactful on me deciding to do pediatric pharmacy. So I would, yeah. How long have you guys, you guys have, you have a tight crew. Like I feel like you've yeah. all been there for a lot of years. Yeah, I'm I'm almost 16 years now. So that's awesome. Yeah. And yeah, yeah thank you for the pediatric elective because <laughs> so it really was. It, it was like the first real taste of peds that I ever got. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Um so I would I actually heard the the kids list interview that you guys did and posted on PPA. And I'm like extremely mortified to say that I wasn't aware of it. Um and so I was I I know from obviously my lack of um knowledge of it that there's probably other pharmacists that don't know this fabulous resource exists. Um and when asked to host uh, for the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Pediatrics in Review, uh, when I heard that, I was like, I would love to get these um, amazing pharmacists on who, you know, founded this and started this and really emulated what the beers list did for us. So I would love to like first hear, like, how did this excellent idea even come to fruition? I'm going to let Dave take that one. Okay. He's <laughs> like... I'm, I'm the one uh, on that one. So, yeah, you know, when when I uh, graduated from the University of Minnesota, 
Um, we didn't even have a PEDS course then. We do now. Um, we established one there. And um, I did get a PEDS rotation, but other than that, I didn't have a lot of experience in pediatric pharmacy outside of some discussions in various classes like infectious diseases, yeah. uh, pulmonary. And uh, when I came into practice, one of the first things that I wanted to do, and I didn't do a residency, um, is, is to try and better understand the population that I was serving. And one of the things that I was uh, accumulating uh, along the way, the knowledge was um, some medications that carry a higher risk uh, if you use them in peds uh, versus adults. And I probably had five that I knew maybe from- Like from off the top of your head, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Aspirin, um, it's poison apparently, and uh, things like that. <laughs> and so I began accumulating a list of medications in my head, um, just really from word of mouth. Internet didn't exist. Um, so it was a lot of word of mouth. Uh, I, I didn't have a lot of uh, ready access to published um, materials. So it was it was a lot of, yeah, just uh, what other people said and, and trusting people who were um, more experienced than I was. And, and I found that over time, these lists, you know, that people had in their heads were not the same. They were not jiving. So, you know, pharmacist A had a different list than pharmacist B. And, um, you know, when I first practiced uh, in uh, Fresno, California at Valley Children's, um, you know, they had a different list than when I was in Houston um, hmm. and when I was here in, at Children's Minnesota. So I, I thought there was a reason uh, to kind of bring this together and, and get some uniformity uh, around a list. And I thought that somebody else would do it, like Nahada or, or somebody, <laughs> uh, somebody with more experience than me. And I just kind of waited it out. I was hoping for somebody else to do it. Actually, early on, I thought it had been done. I just wasn't aware of where it was, but um, it, it hadn't been done. So time passes and, and uh, you know, I, I uh, was fortunate to serve on the board at uh, PPA uh, for a time. And um, I just, uh, I thought it'd be a good project, you know, for PPA to take on that uh, PPA being pediatric uh, pharmacy experts ought to uh, come together and, and um, you know, publish something like this uh, that we all can agree on, at least one thing that we can agree on. And so that that's kind of where it came from. Uh, just it, it it was born out of necessity, uh, similar to the beers criteria. You know, pediatric patients they they process medications in a different way than adults do, and sometimes it it can hurt them. And uh, that's what this is all about. Yeah, and I do feel like you practice like you know you practice very similar to where you were born, res like raised in and bread so like I know like at Cooper where I I used to work it was all Rutgers grads so we were all like kind of you know practice the same because we were taught mm -hmm. by the same people and then as you branch out that's when you really get to learn more and see the different styles of pediatric pharmacy and you know we do all these things um a lot of times by just like case reports, you know, because of our lack of literature. So this is like a truly a, a cherished resource. Um, and, and like I said, very, very much needed. Um, so when you created the kids list, what, what people were, were at the table? Dave, you want to take that one too? Yeah, I'll start <laughs> and then 
You can chime in, Rachel. Um, so yeah, you know, when I was, um, you know, at the, at the board level at PPA, when this was discussed at a meeting, uh, it, it was, uh, I think the, the value was immediately recognized as something that we should do. I'm sorry, my computer's going off here. Um, but, um, and so I, I had, a, you know, a few individuals in mind that I thought would be uh, good, um, that would uh, do well on something like this. And uh, the members of the board had um, some additional ideas, and we approached that um, those individuals. And I think, Rachel, we even had a meeting maybe where we might have added a couple of others. Yeah. And in the end, we had seven individuals, and, and we were looking for people with different perspectives in pediatrics across the spectrum. So inpatient, uh, ambulatory, we were looking for critical care, neonatal pediatric critical care, uh, those who um, who know oncology well, um, and just academia, non-academia, leadership, not leadership. And so we were looking for um, individuals that would not only maybe respond well and do well with the um, with the work, but also have uh, experience in different areas. And we also wanted to include someone who is a little more junior also. So um, R.C. Halinga was, uh, you know, fresh out of training. He was Dave's resident and he had worked on it as a resident also. But we thought it was a good opportunity to include someone also who was fresh into practice because they would bring a whole new perspective. Yes, they would. And I actually always loved practicing the people younger than me because they taught me just as much as I taught them. They'll be like, yeah. do you know, like there's actually a newer article and I'm like, no way. <laughs> so, you know, I think too, getting away from, I, I always said, like, if I ever say like, it's because I've, that's always how I've done it. Like that means I should retire because, <laughs> you know, I think there's just as much utility from learning from our, our younger younger peers and colleagues who are, are fresh out of school because they may know something that's a little bit newer in the literature than we, than we do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if I can, you know, expand just a little bit on that, Rachel, and yeah. we're getting off kids list topic, but uh, you know, as some of the publications that I've done, I could have just done it. I, I could have just wrote the case report or, you know, uh, taken a, a group of experienced individuals and, and just done it. And, um, and then the new the new person the new person right out of residency wouldn't have had a, a chance or the the intern mm -hmm. who should be learning how to do this then missed an opportunity and so I I really try to um, take take somebody who's earlier in their career and um, give them an opportunity to um, get their feet wet and get involved in something bigger and 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 maybe it'll turn into something else uh, down the line but I think and most of them want to. They usually want it. They usually want to anyway. They are like usually much more sometimes energetic. <laughs> a little more eager. Yes. Uh, it's true. You got to feed off their energy too. Yes, absolutely. Right. <laughs> um, I think for those who haven't read the, the article or, or looked at the list, um, I'm sure you can recite the definition off the top of your head, but really how you defined an adverse drug reaction and then, you know, how just to stress that for the for the people listening that this is medications that could be potentially harmful at normal doses. Is that correct? Oh, wait, can I interject one second? I think we need to also like um, how everybody that 
what kids actually stands for and where did that come from? Yes. <laughs> you mean the, an, an acro- the acronym? Yes. Um, yeah. 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 So it's the key potentially inappropriate, <laughs> yeah, drugs and pediatrics. Um, that will give credit to that to Kelly Matson, who is one of our authors. Um, she came up with that. She's super creative with uh, her titles and everything. So that was very creative. I was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that was all Kelly. So, <laughs> yeah, if I will to... say, if I will say, if, if there was one thing that was the most difficult hurdle to achieve, it was the title of this mm-hmm. manuscript. Mm-hmm. Because we were we were all looking for something that was unique, Edgy. yeah, that worked, and she ended up coming up with that, so it was wonderful. Yeah, I like it. I think we did a better colleague than our geriatric that called beers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then maybe for people who don't know, I guess maybe we could tell them like what the equivalent is from beers to kids, like what exactly it is, what exactly this list means. Yeah. Um. So. I think for people who don't know, the Beers list um, came out in the late 90s for geriatric patients, and it's from Dr. Beers, um, and he came up with it with his group, and now the American Geriatric Society owns the list, and they kind of are responsible for updating it every few years. Um, So basically, it's the medications that, again, are potentially inappropriate, and that potentially is really important because there are always going to be times in you know clinical medicine where a medication might be warranted even though we know it has risks in that population um so they kind of coined that term and um, we really modeled after them because that list is such a good guideline for those in geriatrics um Mm -hmm. and so we just looked at how they did it. We copied a lot of their methodology, but that the idea again is that they're potentially inappropriate medications for geriatric patients. And so the idea there is that I just really want to stress that they're showing how geriatric patients are different than the rest of the population. So there may be medications that are risky for all patients, but in the beers list, it's these medications are going to be at higher risk for geriatric patients. So we tried to do the same thing where we're pulling out medications that are potentially more harmful in kids than the rest of the population. So there are several drugs that we talked about and classes that are certainly risky in kids, but we couldn't prove that they were more risky. So Mm -hmm. for example, fluoroquinolones, we ended up leaving off because we found that they have risks in everybody. Um, and that was that was probably the most hotly debated one. That that and the SSRIs were the two uh, most contentious issues. Yeah, I, I think I, you could. Yeah, go ahead. You could, you could point to chemotherapy, right? Oh, it's right. toxic, right? It does hurt kids. Yeah, this isn't a list of medications that that cause adverse drug reactions in in pediatrics. It's it has to be a higher a, carry with it a greater risk than the adult population innately. Yeah. yeah, and that's really good to know because I do find that, you know, just like Rachel's saying, you know, the four clinolones, we unfortunately need a lot of the times in our like medically complex kids with all the multi-drug resistance that's going on. And, you know, sometimes we have kids on SSRIs like down to the you know age of six. Um, but, you know, you definitely with those, you you want to use them last line. And so, yeah, it's a good understanding for people who are listening, like what exactly the drugs needed to entail to be able to qualify for the list. Um, And then I thought another interesting thing too was like 
how you summarized and organized the libs based on like the strength and the grade. And if you could just also um, speak to that as well, because I think that plays in, in, you know, in as well when you're making the decision whether or not to use these drugs. As well as the age groups, because I was thinking that would have been challenging as well. <laughs> yeah, the age groups we went back and forth on because depending on where you look from the FDA to what industry does to what we in, in you know, uh, clinical practice do, it's different. Um, and so that we had a lot we, we went down to the wire, I think, on that one, Dave, right? <laughs> a lot of these were dog fights. Yeah, we were um, going back and forth. In the end, you know, even a dysfunctional family can agree in the end. And, you know, I think that probably on the age uh, categories, the age breakpoints, we looked at uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics mm -hmm. and FDA and, and a little bit about what, you know, the vernacular is in our own speech. Mm -hmm. I think where we might have been a little different that we can confuse some folks is if, if you look at our age range, um, we identify um, everyone who's less than two years of age as an infant. So a lot of clinicians may consider anybody less than, you know, 12 months or less than yeah. one year. Yeah. Um, his list does expand that up to two years. So when you read infants in the literature, in the paper, uh, that it does include kids who are between age one and two as well. And a lot of that decision was based on where the breakpoints of harm were. So for example, above infants, we just have children because we didn't think we didn't find any differences between a three-year-old and a 17-year-old in our searches. So we didn't feel the need to further subdivide it, which in future iterations, they may find that there's a reason to do that. But mm -hmm. for our purposes. That's yeah, like the first one I think of like valproic acid, like cut off two years of age. So there's like exactly. certain ones that, yeah, you're right. Uh, thinking about it, like that's when we, when we really don't want to use it unless we absolutely have to. Yeah. Um, yeah, agreed. Um, and, and so we, we did stretch it a little bit like that. We, we talked about toddlers and not having a toddler group or not, and, and we just decided not to. Yeah. But, but as far as the, you know, the strength of evidence, you know, if you look, if you look at the publication, it will, we'll use the word strong. If it is a recommendation that we feel most clinicians, most informed clinicians would uh, probably avoid that medication in that subpopulation of pediatrics. And we, we break out the different age ranges where we think it's highest risk. So strong uh, recommendation, most informed clinicians would probably avoid that. Of course, every decision is a risk benefit uh, for the patient. You know, we have propofol on the list and we yeah, use it every day, repeats, you know, so it, it has to do with uh, who you're using it in, how much you're using and uh, what the clinical situation is. So that's that's uh, why we decided uh, to go with th the strength. So we have strong recommendation, moderate or weak as far as our uh, recommendations and then quality of evidence, um, high quality evidence means that you know, further evidence in the literature is very unlikely that we're going to change our recommendation. Um, but if, if you look at the kids list, we have a, a large number of recommendations that are uh, just weak recommendations or low quality of evidence. And um, I, I, we're not going to go out there and, and try to mine more evidence for adverse reactions in kids. We, we just kind of have to go off of what the literature says. 
um, and hope that well, well, well done studies uh, are conducted before medications are rolled out on kids. So the quality of evidence is uh, uh, weaker than we, we would like, uh, mm -hmm. it's certainly weaker than the Beers criteria, uh, but uh, we, we had to uh, make that judgment within our group. Yeah, I was going to say you probably had to work with what you had, which probably wasn't all that great. I'm no, and like especially practicing neonatology for you know a long time, like always rotating through the the NICU. It's like you really are making decisions based off of maybe like a subset of ten other patients that you know once once you get down to it. And so it kind of, I think all pediatric pharmacists are really comfortable in that gray area where a lot of other pharmacists are like, oh no, I can't do this because mm -hmm. we kind of were, are, were trained and, and our resources are limited. So, you know, you get comfortable making that judgment call when there's not a lot to go off of. Um, and I think too, it's awesome because it stresses the fact of how different these, these kids are. Um, now this is, this is um, something completely different, but have you guys ever thought of you know, I know when we're thinking of this list, we're thinking of our little, our subset of pediatric pharmacists and starting my own pediatric pharmacist consultant business has showed me that we are rare unicorns. Um, so <laughs> where else or what other uh, providers and professions and stuff do you feel like could, could utilize this list um, to the best of their ability and, you know, outside of, outside of just pediatric pharmacists? I really think community pharmacists, I think this would be such a great resource for them. Um, just to give you an example, um, you know, Jenna, you're in New Jersey and, and Dave's in Minnesota. We, Lyme disease is pervasive here and yes. the prescribing of doxycycline. I mean, we do it quite frequently and yes. we did not include doxycycline on our list. And, and the CDC even says doxycycline is safe for Lyme. But my pediatricians tell me they get phone calls from community pharmacists. This is not safe for kids to use. You shouldn't be prescribing this. And so some of that information is just outdated based on, again, very small studies and extrapolations. And so uh, yeah. I really hope that we can help um, publish this and um, just or publicize, I guess, is the word. <laughs> yeah. with, uh, with the community group. I agree. Well, can with I that. Ask? I'm sorry. <laughs> on that topic i'm sorry Jen, but are you doing any kind of explanation i guess or doing something else to talk about the ones that weren't added and people question you know what i mean yeah um i mean we have we included some of those in our discussion of the original paper um i guess we ha i don't know i haven't done anything else besides that uh they give you more work because <laughs> i'm just thinking that that's a good point too is that there's all these myths out there like you know don't do the quinolones don't do doxycycline and maybe people need explanation on why it wasn't on the list because it's okay yeah and i think too like this is a great resource like you're saying for community pharmacists because when i talk to them and especially now out being in the community working with these retail pharmacists, like they don't even have access to Lexicom, like resources that we take advantage of, they don't have. So like, you know, maybe this is a, a free, you know, like, I mean, Lexicom is expensive. So let's not, you know, let's be real. Maybe that's why they don't have it. Um, and we're spoiled to have it in big institutions, but 
you know, I think this would be wonderful to market towards um, community and retail pharmacists. Have you guys done anything like that? Uh, um, I looked into like APHA and maybe presenting there, but um, I, their process for getting into their meeting is very different than what I'm used to. So <laughs> I was kind of hit with roadblocks there. So that's I, far I will say publishing the list and sending it out to pharmacists or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, we, we, we have been approached by different organizations, um, internationally even, and there is one um, organization in Canada that maintains uh, the drug database information at, at chain pharmacies in Canada that have has adopted the kids list into its Oh, that's awesome. Reaction yeah. software. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly LexiCop is aware and has incorporated it. But yeah, if you don't have Lexi, then that's that's an issue. But <clears throat> other than like these roadshows, I think we, we've been trying to get out there, um, you know, uh, publishing or speaking, um, trying to get the word out. Um, but 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 as far as, far as your, your original question. Oh, I'm sorry. What's that, Alice? I wonder how the beers list has gotten so popular. Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. And again, it's 20 um, plus years old now. Yeah. I was say it's old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, you know, to add on, you know, our, our uh, community um, based pharmacists would be an excellent um, place to reach out to. But um, other populations, uh, you know, that would benefit certainly um, medical schools, um, physician groups. We we have ours published on um, on the same page as our guidelines here at Children's Minnesota, uh, so they're widely available. And you know, a lot of institutions are doing this. Um, they're rolling some of the recommendations through the PNT and restricting medications. You get pop ups, that sort of a thing, and it's it's based on this recommendation. Over time, I think, as uh, you know, as clinicians rotate through centers that uh, work with it, um, the word will eventually spread. But yeah. I don't know of any good way of doing that. Uh, you know, another way I suppose we could do, um, and, and we've talked about this, is uh, approaching the American Academy of Pediatrics for their um, partnership and endorsement. Yeah. I think that would um, move move the list uh, further in that in the area of physicians and uh, practitioners, other practitioners. Um, yeah, so I yeah. think even like now, the Pharmacy Podcast Network, we have a wonderful resource in, in Todd who is reaches tens of thousands of pharmacists. So any pharmacists out there that are listening that could help us promote this to get it in the hands of other practitioners to really optimize and just help increase the quality of care that these pediatric kids receive because I know, again, I'm not, I don't want to bang on retail um, or bash on them. That's not my intention, but a lot of times they don't even have a kid's weight. So I think like we really need to, there's a level of discomfort that comes with the community pharmacists when it, when peds in general come in, uh, but they need to get that comfort level because of the amount of pediatric patients they're taking care of. So I think, you know, starting my company perfecting peds my you know number one goal has been like is there any way we can what ways can we equip pharmacists with more education more resources and and more comfort to to take care of uh, pediatric patients and so 
-hmm. Yeah, I think this is one step 100% in the right direction. I'm throwing out an idea. What about just like a little card, you know, Mm -hmm. like a laminated card you pass out or people can refer to? I think it changed. I mean, I think it's great, but I think as changes are made, that's where you you put yourself in a... Yeah. Yeah. Just so I wanted to do a quick plug, we're going to be publishing a position statement from PPA very soon that weights should be included on all prescriptions and in prescriptions. Thank software. you. <laughs> yeah, so that just got finalized and sent to JPPT. Um, I was fortunate enough to be uh, included in that, in that group. Um, Thank you. Nice. Yeah. Yes. Seriously, like, it's unsettling when I drop off one of my mm-hmm. three groups at a CVS pharmacy and not what, or sorry, not to call out, I'm going to now, <laughs> not to call out a pharmacy, a retail pharmacy, but Todd, take out the CVF, um, retail <laughs> pharmacy, and they don't ask, they don't ask my kids weights. I'm like, well, how are, is anybody checking this? So, you know, yeah. it is really a source of, of uneasiness being a peds pharmacist and knowing, okay, you guys are taking care of other pediatric patients, but you have no idea what their weight is to even yeah. double check the provider. That's one of the one things I teach my students all the time. So like, that's another way I think we have to get to the pharmacist is through the, when we're teaching them as well. But I teach them whenever we do peds things, ask the weight first. You can't do anything if you don't ask the weight, ask the weight. Yeah, it is. It is so true. Um, And I know just for everybody listening, a big, one of the questions I get over and over again, um, like was the inclusion of a lot of patients or parents, I should say, love homeopathics mm-hmm. and natural supplements. So can you comment on why or why not you included it just for the people or didn't include them for the people listening? And, you know, if I'll keep my my biased opinion to myself, but your your <laughs> your opinions on them as well. I'll, I'll comment. Um, yeah, we, we, we uh, at the beginning, when we um, defined the exclusion criteria, we um, excluded certain types of medications or things that could be considered medications just because of the scope of this thing. And then even as we went, when something would pop up, we'd say, oh, my, is this included or not? And then we'd have a discussion and say, OK, that group's out. So um, herbal medications and homeopathic remedies were not within scope in this document. So um, by, but there, there's so many, uh, that's, that's a whole nother publication if you wanna yeah. go down that road. Um, I think uh, because they are not here does not mean they're safe. Um, and, and I should say, you know, the, the kids list is not a, it's not a, a, a publication on effectiveness either. It, it is really right. only talking about adverse reactions. Uh, we left out vaccines, um, inhaled anesthetics, um, uh, TPN uh, sorts of things. Uh, we 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 considered out of scope anything that was an overdose uh, because we were talking about medications used in the normal uh, right. dosing, and so overdoses were out. Um, and I can't remember what else. You know, Allergic responses were out too. So another okay. large group uh, that we had a lot of hits, allergies were out. Uh, so yeah, homeopathic was not included. And I think now with like the, you know, the increased use of antibiotics that we've seen over the past year, I've been really trying to push parents to go back to the 
allergists and rechallenge them with those penicillins because a lot of times it's not a true penicillin allergy and antibiotic resistance right now is by our pure overuse of antibiotics is is concerning but no i think too like I, I cringe when parents ask me when they send me a picture of like this homeopathic medication that's like just filled with like lavender fragrances or, you know, grass. And I'm like, please don't like, that's not effective. Like my own brother will probably kill me for sharing the story has a child with GERD and he like kept giving her homeopathic over homeopathic. I'm like, you know, you really have to go to the GI doc and you really have to get, you know, famotidine to start with because like, Clearly, like these anti-gas drops aren't effective. And I think it's concerning too, because there a lot of them aren't regulated, um, mm-hmm. which is what makes me like say, please stop, please stop, um, is the lack of regulation. I think they're regulated as much as salt and pepper, probably. <laughs> you know, supplements. <laughs> yeah, dietary supplements. Yeah, that's what I said. I'm like, Ooh. I could literally take a bunch of grass make this in my basement and sell it and like for so that's I I think too like I the onus is like I do want to be more educated about you know dietary supplements that have like the you know that have standard regulations and stuff like I I am interested because I do think like b12 iron like there are like vitamins that can 100% help children, you know? Um, but I think sometimes when you go down this homeopathic route and the lack of, um, you know, just quality control, it gets really concerning. And that's a common question I get from a lot of parents is like, can I give this? And I'll just say, I prefer you don't, because I don't even know what's in it, you know? Yeah. Although I will say a plug for the herbalists out there, I will say, I think there are some herbal medications, you know, leaves, roots, and things that do have some pharmacological properties. Yes, yes. They may be quite worthy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think they should be studied, quantified, purified, standardized. And let's go. We can study those. Uh, I think that's that's one. The outside of epi, you know, epidiolex, like which we use, which is beautiful. Like if that's what, when parents ask me, can I give my kid CBD? I'm like, if I... If it's not for, you know, Epidiolex and, you know, it's not for, you know, Lenox Gashro or, or, or an indication, I don't know how to dose it. I'm not saying I'm not against it at all, but I just need like more studies so I can feel comfortable because I do think there is a lot of utility and potential for this, the medication, but it's like when you, you can't, can't give a dose, it's like, you're kind of just stuck at like, you know, no, you can't use it until we have more studies. So I completely agree. I think mm-hmm. it's it's just the 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 lack of streamlining is is what we're we're saying because there are, I know even myself, like if I I was low on B12 once I started supplementing, I felt like such a different human. So mm-hmm. um <clears throat> was there anything um like what was something you I guess, wish was on the list or wasn't, or what was the medication, if you can remember, that was the biggest debate, do you feel like? I think the SSRIs were really tough for us because we know there's some risk there, um, but we know that there's so much benefit um, for so many kids. And so we really didn't, we couldn't figure out, or there wasn't enough data to be able to pinpoint a higher risk between 
like one particular medication. And we didn't want to put the whole class on there because again, again, there's so much benefit. So I think that's my greatest hope for the next um, time this was revised is that maybe we'll have a little bit better data and we can help clinicians out a little more with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think too, um, again, giving you more work. Yes. Um, I think like as we all progress into the PGX stage too, like that'd be really interesting, you know, to implement too, like at normal doses based off your genetics, this is not safe. Um, I know I'm really thinking down the road, but yeah, you know, that that's where my my mind goes with like just even more ways that you could expand this. Um but so yeah, when I, do you think you're going to update or how frequently yeah. is visit? Well, uh, our hope was every five years, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll see. Yeah, about every five years. You know, you, you mentioned uh, pharmacogenomics. Um, I think you know th there were two medications that made the list where we recommended pharmacogenomic testing. Um, that was codeine and tramadol. Mm -hmm. And one one of the exclusions from our um, consideration um, were toxicities due purely to due to pharmacokinetic or you know, metabolic things uh, that would imply that we're we're not dosing properly or correctly. Right. You, you could argue maybe chloramphenicol falls in that bucket, but but we did include we decided to include that. Now, I I think um, I wouldn't um, just start adding um, medications uh, from a pharmacogenomic perspective. I think that's maybe another entirely right. different right. paper. But if if there are phenotypic expressions that happen in the pediatric life. Um, that are uh, make it so that that medication is more dangerous, and we can show that by looking at the literature. They'll they'll get included in the list. So if there's a phenotypic express, expression from a you know a genotype for a certain group, uh, and 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 we found that it causes apnea, or it's likely to cause apnea right. or some other yeah. adverse reaction. If it's a peds thing, then we're gonna go ahead and consider that for the list. Yeah, no, I think it's wonderful that we're it's becoming more accessible to to do the pharmacogenomics because like you're saying, codeine is like the most beautiful example. Um, mm -hmm. if you're an ultra rapid metabolizer, you you know, there's risk that you could die. And so we don't take that lightly in the pediatric setting. So like my first thing I did when I came to my old hospital is just completely take it off formulary in the pediatric setting because, you know, we don't always have the liberty of, of knowing, you know, how they're going to metabolize it. But I do think, you know, it will become eventually like a standard of care or more people will have access to it. So it's, it won't be like a blanket, like do not use it at all in Pete, you know, because mm -hmm. that's how and, I treated it. Yeah. Also like tag on to what Rachel was saying about the SSRIs. Yeah. We wrestled with that significantly. And the reason I mean, if you go into any SSRI, you'll see a black box warning around yes. not using it in pediatrics. And, and you'll say, why are they not on the list? You know, uh, the reason is uh, we left we, we left medications off the list if there was um, no other better alternative, you know. Yep. So we, we felt um, the SSRIs uh, were the best alternative for the treatment of depression. If you're going to treat yep. it, that's, that's what mm -hmm. you're going to have to use. Um, Tricyclics are on the list, you know, but SSRIs are not because they're right now currently the state of the art. Yeah. 
Now, if we find a difference between them, it's kind of what Rachel was getting at. There were some studies out there showing re relative risk of one or the other with different side effects. And it's hard for us to say, yes, based on one paper, we're going to do that. So we're kind of waiting for the literature to mature a little bit there. And so we may find that certain SSRIs are more uh, dangerous in kids than others. And, and when, we, when we're able to say that, we, we'll go ahead and say that. Yeah. But, um, you know, to your original question, Kent, you know, Jenna, um, is there anything that I am disappointed that's not on the list? Or whatever? <laughs> I don't know. I think I had probably 54 meds on the list. Some of mine were booted, I'm sure. I, I can't mm -hmm. remember. I, I, I have to say I'm not disappointed by anything that didn't make the list. I, I don't want any on the list, I guess, is, is kind of what I want. But um, as far as surprises, you know, I, um, I, was, I was a little bit surprised by how little information there was on aspirin yes <laughs> we went around and around on that one yes we, we had to stand it's the literature is the literature it's terrible it's not good um right. the, the more experienced um of us uh in the association uh were were felt very strongly that uh, that aspirin was is, is bad uh, but there just wasn't a paper trail on that one, unfortunately. Hmm. And then, and then doxycycline was brought up. You know, we uh, we looked at the literature, we made a determination, we left doxy off the list, we published, and then then the federal government came out with their, uh, you know, saying that it's okay to use in kids, which I'm I'm glad it it went that way because if it went the other way, I'd, I'd feel like um, kind of bad, but. I think we read the literature correctly on that one. Um, yeah. so Doxy was, <clears throat> I was pleased to see that um, that not to be on the list. Um, mm -hmm. Aspirin did make the list, but it just barely, it just clawed its way on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of pushback on that in terms of the strength of the uh, recommendation. Right. Uh, <laughs> we wanted that to be really strong and you know, I presented um, this information in grand rounds to my local hospital. And yeah, some of the older physicians were like, oh, but I saw these kids. And like Dave said, I had to say to them, like, there's there's no paper trail of that. There's no yeah. there's no really great proof of it. So we had to go with what the literature said. But nobody's going to do a study now and test the safety of it. With that information is not going to get any better, unfortunately. Right. It, right. it just is what it is. And it's, yeah. With an ethical, I mean, there's always such an ethical yeah. liability when you involve children in any sort of study. And so, especially now, I'm just, I did a lot in residency and then I, I didn't have any part of, of any studies, but now doing it on them on medically complex kids, it really is, there's like a huge ethical component mm -hmm. that comes with it. And so, yeah, no one's going to want to go down that rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um. I think, I mean, my only one other thought was just to adapt this. And this is kind of like, I know where, where Dave was with kids and being in the NICU all the time. Like, I think this would be so cool if, if we took this and did this for pregnant patients too, especially because like, mm -hmm. you know, we're all in some way, shape or form have been involved in neonatology, which I feel like there's nobody in, in the pharmacist realm really owns a uh, pediatric, you know, the fetal maternal except us. So I feel like that kind of falls on us too. Um, you know, whether or not, I mean, that was where my mind went because I was on Effexor for all of my pregnancies and it was a really hard decision to make. Um, 
even being a pharmacist and knowing that, you know, if my anxiety, if I'm having panic attacks, I can't ha- I can't carry a child like that. It's just doesn't even. But I, I think too something like this where we could really come together cohesively mm-hmm. for pregnant women, too, is just a random thought I had, um, because I, I do feel like just like kids and geriatrics, they're kind of like the other odd man out um as far as you know medications go so just a random thought <laughs> and lacta- lactation also yes yes such a hard oh, one. definitely yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I'll, I'll say you know for uh, complete transparency um teratogenicity was left out of this list medications received to the baby through breastfeeding was specifically left out of this list right so mm-hmm. that that's an area of focus that that could benefit from this uh, type of scrutiny. I really do agree. And then, um, you know, this list, again, you know, the limitations of what we did, we were really only looking at medications that were uh, FDA labeled. Um, So uh, other countries, uh, you know, European Union or uh, countries in Asia, uh, they they really uh, would benefit from doing their own publication of their own, you know, inspection of their own formularies or their own their own work. So I think there's additional work that could be done even in the pediatric space. It's just not done um, that could add on to the knowledge. Yeah. Well, I mean, all I can say is thank you guys because it's yeah. definitely a need. And so, um, you know, being out and just finally, you know, 11, 12 years in my career of trying turning and trying to get into the advocacy domain. I mean, this is great. I, I, I love it because not practicing in the hospital now opened up my eyes to just like such a need of the like lack of resources and and really experience that pharmacists and just providers in general have in in pediatrics specifically when it comes to medication. So just a sincere thank you for helping advocate for our children by making this list. Yeah, we we also just want to give, of course, credit to the Pediatric Pharmacy Association for supporting um, the list and um, really, you know, driving its its creation. And then, of course, also to the members of the Pediatric Pharmacy Association, we had an open feedback point and we got such great. I mean, we changed a bunch of stuff, right? It opened up a whole new discussion points on a bunch of the medications. So um, it's really because of their help um, that it is what it is. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and thank you for having us. I really yeah. appreciate that. Um, in you know, and and you're you're uh, having us on uh, just spreads the word a little bit more. And I hope a few folks uh, are able to see this and put it into action. Yes, we need to keep spreading the word <laughs> for sure. And Todd's a man; he's great. He'll help us do it. That's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. 